Now I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Jessie Morgan Owens. She is a scholar, educator, and writer, currently serving as a dean of Bard Early College in New Orleans. That institution seeks to increase access to higher education by offering tuition-free, immersive college experiences for public high school students. Dr. Morgan Owens received her doctorate in American literature from New York University. She wrote a dissertation on 19th century American anti-slavery literature and early photography. Her research has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Newhouse Center for the Humanities at Wellesley College. In addition to her academic work, she is a professional photographer with a client list including Travel and Leisure Magazine and the New York Times Magazine. Her brand new book, which just came out, is called Girl in Black and White. It tells the story of Mary Mildred Williams, an unknown seven-year-old girl whose photograph transformed the abolition movement. Please join me in welcoming Jesse Morgan Owens. Thank you, Maria. Hi, everyone. Hello. So. Um, archive work can be dangerous. I don't know if you knew that. But it's full of stories and faces and every now and then a story touches you. And as Jean-Luc Nancy says, you are touched and thus drawn in, and you get involved. Um, and it, it becomes imperative that you are relentless in your search for the story's end. That moment came for me in 2006 while reading the Boston Telegraph from 1855, you know, as you do. Um, uh, I found a, a letter from Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner about a bright enslaved child named Mary. Here's the letter. He calls her in the letter another Ida May after the kidnapped white heroine of that year's best-selling anti-slavery novel, Ida May. He enclosed a daguerreotype of Mary. And because my dissertation was on daguerreotypy and abolition and the use of daguerreotypes in the abolition movement, I dove in. Um, and I dove hard. <laughs> so after a dozen years of grant-funded archival research in America's archives, including this one, I, along with fellow anti-slavery scholars Zoe Trod and Mary Niall Mitchell, have determined that this photograph of Mary may well be the first of its kind, one of the first images of photographic propaganda one of the first portraits solely made to prove a political point. Now, historians are always a little nervous about firstness, right? Because all it's going to take is somebody digs up another daguerreotype, and my argument is no longer there. But I do think that we can wait for a moment and think about how photography changed the way that people saw things, how they thought, how they argued their points. Um, it's easy to forget the primal potency that photography had on an antebellum audience. Um, invented in 1839, first, uh, first displayed here in Boston at Tremont Street uh, in November of 1839 from Paris. Um, daguerreotypes 
were an innovative technology. And the argument that I make in this book and elsewhere is that anti-slavery uh, and photography have overlapping histories. Their innovative movements, their techniques, their sway over the public mind advanced apace in the 1840s and 1850s, culminating in the moment that I'm calling a pretty extraordinary moment in the history of media, which is when Mary's daguerreotype marks the moment when photography first begins to make its tenacious claim on our sympathy and our political point of view. So Mary is America's first poster child. Um, I am a photographer, as, as Maria mentioned, and the lens is a mimicry of my eye. And for me, the way that the reason I love photography, the way that I have chosen to use it, is that I can take a picture of something and say, this is beautiful, or this is important, or this is meaningful. I want you to see it, and then hand it to another group of people. And it, it's actually more than that. I can say, this is how I see it, and this is exactly the way that I want you to see it. Or this is how you can see what I see exactly the way that I want you to see it in the moment that I want you to see it, and then I can hand it to someone else. To me, as a photographer, making choices every day about what to photograph, how to photograph it, and what I want that photograph to convey made me pretty clear that photography was political from day one. Like, there's no prehistory of photography where it was neutral. But when I first started graduate school in the early 2000s, People still argued at that time that photography was neutral in the 19th century, that portraits are neutral, and that people could take pictures and, um, and believe what they saw, right? That seeing was believing for photography in the 19th century was a pretty common argument in academic work at the time. And I kept saying that can't be true, right? And so when I found this letter from Charles Sumner, it essentially said what I had been arguing all along, that Charles Sumner, who was a, a member of this library and came every day to walk, read the newspaper, um, and also the anti-slavery senator from Boston. Um, he was writing from Washington, where he's currently serving as a senator, and saying that he has found a person whose photograph can make a point, as he says, more effectively than any speech I can make. I don't think he really means that. I think Sumner was a rather arrogant man. So it's unlikely that he means that, that sh the photograph will be more resonant than his speech. But it is an important idea to think about how we have a person become a message. So Roland Barthes and his theory of photography, Camera Lucida, which is a very important foundational book for me, he says that you can have three available stances around photography, that any photograph including this one, has three available stances. The first is to do it, to take the photograph. So we kind of know why Charles Sumner took this photograph or had this photograph made by Julian Vanderson's studio in Washington. It was in order to make an argument that race was an unstable indicator for enslavement, that you should not base an entire system of exploitative labor and an entire American economy on race because there were people who were enslaved who did not have brown skin, who were white. And in Mary's case, he used the story of little Ida May, 
which was one of the first clues that I had to go on. When I just had this letter, all I had was uh, her name is Mary and that she was another Ida May. That's not a lot to go on. There are a lot of Marys in slavery in 1847. Um, so I went with the Ida May. Um, Ida May was the best-selling novel of 1854. It uh, sold about 60,000 copies in its first three months in print. Uh, for reference, that is more, we're just about the same as, I guess it's 57,000 copies were sold of Hard Times by Charles Dickens, which was published at the same time. It outsold P.T. Barnum's autobiography, published at the same time. I always love to say that because we listen to a lot of Greatest Showmen at my house. Um, but there's a, uh, you know, this is a book that was well-received by the abolitionist community and by the readers at the time. It was written by a woman named Mary Hayden Green Pike, who until very recently was completely unknown. Um, and this book I found online, uh, first at the American Anti-Slavery Project, which is run out of uh, Arizona, and then I got a copy on eBay. And I read it, um, and I found that it makes an argument that's very similar to 12 Years a Slave, which was also a publication of 1854 which is that people could be kidnapped because of the fugitive slave law and sold into slavery without any recourse. We would not be able to get them back. And her novel takes a five-year-old white girl from a middle-class family in Pennsylvania, and she's stolen by slave catchers and taken into slavery. She's beaten. Her skin is stained brown. She's given a great deal of laudanum, and she loses her identity. She's unable to remember who she is. And so for the first, and you know, she's only five. Um, and so for five years, for the first eight years of her enslavement, she's largely taken care of by black women uh, in slavery. So this book came out at the same time as Mary's Daguerreotype. And a lot of people, including Charles Sumner, and most of the press, thought Mary was another Ida May that she was potentially a white child who had been kidnapped and sold into slavery and rescued by Charles Sumner. This is not her actual backstory. And so finding her backstory was more difficult because of this novel, right? Uh, because of the appeal of this novel. So when she came to Boston as a prop for Charles Sumner's speeches, she was just sort of... Um, presented as a prop for his speeches alongside Solomon Northrup. So he takes her to the Massachusetts legislature with Solomon Northrup and Anthony Burns. And the thing that these people have in common is that the Boston anti-slavery community felt that their enslavements were somehow unfair um, because they weren't born into slavery. And that was a really difficult argument to make, right? Because it essentially says that for the six million other people that are enslaved, that that was somehow fair, right? But it's also a seductive argument because kidnapping is a simple injustice. You find the person, you bring them home, right? It's like every plot of Liam Nielsen's, Nielsen's movies ever. Um, and you, you bring the people back. Whereas, you know, slavery was a huge systemic injustice. So in 1855, people started to pick up on the kidnapping argument as a way to get at this problem in a new fashion. Um, the other side of this is that white slave propaganda started to pick up steam in the early 1850s. The idea being that from Uncle Tom's Cabin forward, it was easier somehow for folks to connect with people who looked like them 
and so a lot of anti-slavery writers use white or near-white heroines um, in their writing. It was a very common trope in the 1850s, and so Mary also signifies that. And that hint of white slave propaganda brought me closer to figuring out who she actually was. So we've talked about who made the photograph, and we've talked about the audience a little bit and why it was interesting to them. So it's important to talk a little bit about who Mary was. Um, she was born in 1847 in slavery in Virginia, Prince William County, Virginia. Um, and in 1850, her father, who in slavery wore the name Seth Botts, and in freedom chose the name Henry Williams, um, had escaped from his owner, who was also his father, in Stafford County, Virginia, and made it up to, the, to Boston, where he landed in Beacon Hill. Um, Mary's mother, Elizabeth, her grandmother, Prudence, and her great-grandmother, Letty, were all near-white women who were enslaved to men who had sex with their slaves. So most of the children in this family would be considered white. Um, with one exception, which is Oscar. I'm going to show you. This is Oscar, Mary, and her brother, Oscar. This is a photograph made by Cutting and Bowden. Um, it's an amber type, and it's held at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Um, and this is Prudence Nelson Bell. That's Mary and Oscar's grandmother. So Prudence waited um, her entire life to be freed by her master, who was a black man. Um, and it's a complicated story that takes up the whole first part of my book, so I'm not going to get into it too deeply here because I want to spend a little extra time talking about some of the material that's here at the Athenaeum, but also because Beacon Hill is a character in my book, really. Um, a major part of the book takes place in Beacon Hill, so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that. When Seth, um, or Henry Williams, escapes enslavement in 1850, he arrives in Boston um, and finds himself sucker in the house of Isabella Holmes. Um, and so I'm going to pick up the story right there. Um, so everybody can hear me okay? Yeah? Do we have any questions so far? Like just basic questions? No. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great question. So step one, another item A. Step two, Mary. Step three, she's seven. So I know she's 1847. I know she's from Virginia. I know that she is seven years old. I know that she is near white because of the plot of item A. And then the press started picking up on this, and they called her little Ida May in the press. And so I was then able to pick up on who she was. Once she gets to Boston, five or six journalists are there to meet her and to see who she was, right? Because they were like, Charles Sumner has bought a slave. We have to meet this person. Um, and so she became a kind of media darling under the name Little Ida May. Um, so that's how I was able to track it. Thank you. Great question. Um, so let's see. When he arrived in Boston, Seth introduced himself as Henry Williams and procured a new shirt to replace his torn one. He lodged with other fugitives at the home of Isabella Holmes, the daughter of a Methodist minister, Reverend Samuel Snowden, who had also escaped slavery. Known to abolitionists and theologians alike, Father Snowden preached anti-slavery at the May Street Church and welcomed runaways, particularly those who came by sea. Hundreds of fugitives had blessed his front door as the threshold of a new life. 
The day Father Snowden died, October 8, 1850, 13 men arrived at his door, not knowing that they would find grief and succor in equal measures. Seth may well have been one of those. Seth appears to have discarded the name of his ancestor, the 18th century planter Seth Botts, when he got to Boston. The Botts of Virginia were a powerful family, with business in the North. John Minor Botts, who had saved, served in the U.S. House of Representatives, was also often in the press for his unionist or anti-secession pro-compromise views. People in Boston would recognize the name, and that recognition could get Seth taken back to Stafford County. He chose to risk it, using it only in his correspondence with that place. In becoming Henry Williams, he took a ubiquitous name, the kind that gives historians headaches. There are only two Seth Botts appearing in American historical records that I found. Um, our man and his English ancestor, who settled in Virginia in the early 1700s. But 19th century Boston knew hundreds of Henry Williamses. My book has no less than five Williamses. Um, and in slavery, names were changed without consent. So because Seth became Henry of his own accord, from this point I will use Henry Williams to refer to the man, Mary's father, who bore the name Seth Botts in slavery. And I'm reading you this because you may have come across Mary Mildred Botts as a subject before, um, and I certainly published a, an earlier article about her as that name. But as I came to know this story, it became clear to me that even though Williams is a much harder name to find and maybe would make it harder for me to tell the story, I would continue to use the word Williams because that's the word that they chose to call themselves. So. Henry Williams arrived in Boston to find a thriving African-American community on the northern slope of Beacon Hill. According to census data, by the 1850s, black families constituted 2% of Boston's population, or about 2,500 residents, and 70% lived in Ward 6. The residences and boarding houses most often mentioned in this history can be found on Belknap Street. I'm going to butcher these pronunciations. I'm so sorry. Um, but I invite you to New Orleans to try and say our words. So it's charters now. <laughs> um, Smith Court, Southwick Street, now Phillips, May Street, now Revere, Robison Lane, Gibbon Court, Fish Street, and Boltoff Street. People moved from one address to another within these few blocks. The Underground Railroad ran directly down Joy Street in the 1850s. At 20 Hancock Street, one block over from Joy Street, the newly elected Senator Sumner was packing up his Boston residence for his first term in the Capitol. In September 1850, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act, which catalyzed this community already committed to anti-slavery activism through fugitive assistance and aid. The federal act prohibited people like Isabella Holmes from aiding fugitives. By offering food and shelter to the 13 refugees who arrived at Father Snowden's doorstep in the night of his wake, Isabella Holmes was committing a federal crime punishable by a fine of $1,000, several years of a man's wages, and potential jail time. The Fugitive Slave Law deputized the entire North to apprehend people of color as potential fugitives. It mustered a legion of slave catchers, bands of kidnappers who operated under the Federal Commission. These policemen were paid tax dollars to track down fugitives and return them to slaveholders. In response, some residents of Boston's black community chose to answer the call offered by colonization and separatist movements, and they left the country to begin new lives in Haiti or on the eastern coast of Africa. 
Others saw the early integration of Cambridge's school system as a sign that these whites might welcome black children. And they moved out of the crosshairs of black Boston into smaller scattered communities across the Charles River. And a few, including community leaders William Cooper Nell, Dr. John Sweat Rock, Lewis Hayden, and Charles Redman, stayed in Boston to continue the fight for integrated schools and to protect people of color by demanding their full rights as citizens of Boston. Black militia groups such as the Massasoit Guards and the Liberty Guard were organized and armed. Corner lookouts watched key thoroughfares for manhunters. Outposts were established in the countryside, and the community gathered itself together in defiance of this law. So Henry Williams is in this neighborhood working um, kind of one-off jobs for about six months. And then a man named Shadrach Minkins, who was the, a waiter at um, Cornhill Coffee House, which I believe is around the corner in this direction. I'm not sure which way I'm facing at the moment, but that way, uh, across from court, what is now Court Square. Um, and at the Cornhill Coffee House, he was picked up um, potentially by slave, hold, uh, by slave catchers and taken uh, to the courthouse where he was freed by force. It was a very exciting time. And the, he went out to Concord, stayed next door to Henry David Thoreau, and was shipped to Montreal where he lived um, the rest of his life. And um, Henry Williams found out that they needed a waiter at Young's Cornhill Coffee House and took the job. And that is why I came to the Boston Athenaeum. Um, so let's see, I think I have a slide here for that. Sorry. Here we go. On the left-hand side is one of many menus that are held here. Um, they have the entire, like, decade, I believe, that George Young ran the Cornhill Coffee House. They have those menus here. Um, and I found them absolutely fascinating. I'm going to read you a tiny little piece of the story of when Henry Williams is um, taking over the job at Chadrach Meekins left at the coffee house. At the Cornhill Coffee House, a standard bill of fare in the 1850s included a first course of oysters, then a soup course, usually mock turtle or tomato, followed by a roast course that offered a choice of, quote, mongrel, goose, wild turkey, or partridges. This was followed by a game course and dessert. When Williams served there, the game menu offered a choice of, quote, black ducks, brant, blue bill, widgeons, redheads, teal woodcocks, partridges, quail, plover, winter yellowlegs, snipes, and English blackcock. Meals lasted hours, and diners came to know their waiters. Um, He's at this place when um, a writ for a man, a fugitive named Williams, is being disseminated around Boston. Joseph Lovejoy of the Vigilance Committee warns George Young, who employed a number of fugitives, that there's somebody looking for Henry Williams. And they secret him out of the city. Uh, he runs the six hours to Concord and gets in. He stays with Henry David Thoreau, which is one of my favorite passages in the book because Henry David Thoreau wrote about him in his journal on October 50, uh, 51. Um, and describes Henry Williams as an intelligent man. They have a wonderful conversation about directions and which is the best type of birch to use for a wife, like just fascinating stuff. And as a fan of Thoreau, it was an extraordinary moment to happen across my person that I was sort of hunting down to try and figure out where he you know, lived and what his life was like. And it turns out that he's hanging out in Concord with Thoreau. Um, and... <laughs> which is fantastic. It's like my mom likes to call him Forrest Gump. You know, he's always just like turning up at famous events. Um, 
And uh, so when he comes back to Boston, he decides he's going to utilize the connections that he made in the Vigilance Committee to obtain his own freedom and then the freedom of his family. The first step is to find a man you could trust now that he knows that his master, who I remind you was also his father, is looking for him. He knows that he can't just tell anyone who he really is. And through his uh, position at the Cornhill Coffee House, he comes into contact with a man named John Albion Andrew, who would later be the governor of Massachusetts, but at this time is a lawyer working largely in secret for the Vigilance Committee. And he's also, because John Andrew suffered from headaches, um, he did not get to do some of the more exciting stuff that folks were doing with billy clubs and, you know, gathering up slave catchers and lobbies and things. He was mostly fundraising, and he managed a fund known as the Destitute Fugitives Fund that supported 400 families in the period between 1850, when the Fugitive Slave Law is passed, to 1859. Um, and so he knew all of the folks uh, who were living in this area of Boston. Uh, he himself lived a few blocks away above what I think is now Starbucks um, on Charles Street. Um, but he, so he would uh, come to dinner often at the Cornhill Coffee House and he got to know Henry Williams and Henry decided to trust his story to Andrew. And Andrew reached out um, to Charles Sumner, who was then living in Washington to see if he could potentially submit the money that Henry Williams had raised, about $500 to free himself at this point. Um, and he said, you know, I'm going to send you this money, and if you would please give it to this man's father to get the deed of manumission. And so Sumner comes into t to contact with this story at this moment. This is um, the description on the left is of, this is um, in the John A. Andrew um, collection at the at Massachusetts Historical Society. Um, this is the description of Seth that um, was sent along with the money. A lot of times these manumission descriptions are really detailed because they wanted to make sure, the abolitionists wanted to make sure that they didn't get somebody else like passed off on them. I find that really interesting. It's like, you know, you could save anyone. But this man, Henry Williams, needed someone to save him. So he used his um, slavery name, Seth Botts. And one of the things that I love about this is it talks a lot about how he smiles often while speaking. Um, and you don't get a lot of smiles in records of fugitives in the 1850s. Um, so I think his remarkable charisma is really resonates. This smile resonates across time. He uses this, this charisma of his, this power that he has, to fundraise enough to free his entire family. So after he gets his own deed of manumission in, in um, 1852, he begins fundraising for the manumission deeds of his wife, Elizabeth, their three children, of which Mary is the middle child, Oscar, Mary, and Adelaide, Rebecca, um, and then Elizabeth's grand, uh, mother, Prudence, um, and then Prudence refuses to leave without her, the rest of her children, so Seth begins to fundraise for Jesse, Albert, and Ludwell. So, you know, the entire family is freed by this um, industrious person. Um, so the, the one on the right is the um, description of his family, of Elizabeth, Mary, Adelaide, Rebecca, and Oscar. Um, and you can see there's a little bit of description of them there as well, as well as the people that, that would know who they were so that, you know, somebody didn't pass off the wrong person. So when I um, first started 
thinking about this project, one of the things that really touched me was how deeply committed Henry Williams was to freeing his family and how ambivalent Sumner was to helping this family. So it was a kind of interesting push-me-pull-you. Um, I'm going to read a little bit more, if that's okay. Um, and I, so, okay, just a small, a small aside. Ford Maddox Ford says that you can tell the quality of any book by looking at page 99. Uh, and I think that's not, you know, it's not a bad plan. I've tried it a few times. It, it does work. So I, I turn to page 99 in my book and it is blank. So... <laughs> I, uh, I like to read this part just because I, it is a very important part of the book. It's just it happens to be on page 101 and not page 99. So we're going to turn the page. Um, going to revise him. Um, so Charles Sumner was charmed by Mary's older brother, Oscar, when he met him in Washington and after their manumission. Oscar was 10 years old and was bright and intelligent with the eyes of an eagle and a beautiful smile. When Sumner first met Oscar, he asked, you are free, young man. Do you know what that means? And Oscar replied, I now belong to myself. Sumner laughed. Well, there is a definition philosophy might borrow. On February 13th, Sumner divulged his plans for Henry and Elizabeth's children. He would launch a publicity campaign around Oscar's bright and intelligent little sister, Mary. He chose Mary for her light skin color and her vulnerability to the sex trafficking in young enslaved girls. Sumner sketched out a campaign around Mary's appearance. She would be photographed, and then her daguerreotype would travel northward to be copied and displayed. The entire family would be publicly exhibited as they made their way north, first in New York, and then in the State House in Boston, where Mary would be presented on March 9th to the legislature. Sumner would join them in April at the close of the senatorial session. He would present Mary at his lecture in Tremont Temple in May. In his response of February 16th, John Andrew gave his support to Sumner's plan. He says, I also feel desirous that members of the legislature shall have a sight of those children. He agreed with Sumner that they would add, quote, impressiveness to the business underway in the Boston State House. At that time, a petition was circulating to render the fugitive slave law ineffectual in the state of Massachusetts. And the other high drama on the docket that spring was the removal of Justice Edward Loring from the office. The judge had mishandled, in popular opinion, the trials leading to Anthony Burns' rendition. As for Henry Williams, Andrew says, quote, he is very anxious to see his family, but he is willing to submit to your judgment. So when Mary was taken to um, Boston and displayed, uh, she also traveled to Worcester, Mass, and other places, and I was able to follow her appearances through the newspaper. Lots of press covered this uh, event. When she was taken um, first from Washington to Boston, she was accompanied by a man named Charles H. Brannard, or Brainyard, Brainard? Um, and this is him here. He was, at the time, he was 38. And he was a lithographic publisher living here in Boston who had commissioned a album, um, portraits or a portrait gallery of illustrious Americans, um, through uh, Leo Grazier, who was the preeminent illustrator um, engraver at the time. And he needed daguerreotypes of all of these important people in order to have the illustrator have something to work with. And so the... Uh, 
Brainerd is the one who had the daguerreotype made of Mary, and the daguerreotype was made at a place called uh, Julian Vanerson's Gallery. Vanerson photographed senators and presidential hopefuls and mayors, um, so it's a really beautiful daguerreotype, and it's also uh, was probably incredibly expensive. It signifies a great deal of class status for the seven-year-old girl to be photographed by the same person who's photographing the entire U.S. Senate. Um, and Brainerd used a lot of those daguerreotypes in his illustrated gallery, and that text is here at the Athenaeum, so it's part of the reason that I visited it, was to be able to see it in person, um, to be able to see the, pro the production of what it was that he was creating. Um, I have no idea if it was well-received or what its story was, but I think he was an interesting person to be sending along. He's essentially Mary's publicist for the first month of her life, taking her from Washington to the New York Times offices and then to the State House in Boston. And so he was, a, he was an interesting person that not a lot is known about. Um, so I'm kind of curious about him, and that's part of the reason that I came here. Um, so I guess I want to end on um, a note of silence, um, something that really has troubled me. So I've got a lot of details about all these people, right? But I don't know very much about Mary. I have nothing to go on in terms of her personality. Uh, a, a man who came to see her appearance at the State House in Boston from the Worcester Spy newspaper said that her eyes sparkled just like any other girl's when she saw the codfish in the hall. So it's like a vaguely cliche, slightly racist comment to make about her, that she's like any other girl. I went to go see the codfish. Um, I was also surprised. I was like, I want to see, like, what's the deal with this? Because that, that was the only utterance that I had to go on. Um, Mary's story ends with silence. The portrait that I've made here is a, essentially a radial portrait um, and I'm going to, spoilers, read you the last two paragraphs of the book. Date books, notes, and newspaper articles help us to take the measure of men like Charles Sumner and John Andrew and Henry David Thoreau. But Mary Williams lived a private life, marked not by words, but by gestures of the family loyalty that she learned from her grandmother, Pruy. May Mary Mildred Williams' monument be a testament to the abiding value of this experience and what it can teach us about what it means to be human. Mary's silence remains, even now, a cipher of nuance and depth. Hers is the silence of the private woman, the silence of old photographs, the silence of the beloved, the silence of the caregiver, the silence of the oppressed, the silence of those who find a way through oppression, and the silence wrapped in the archive ready to be given the honor of a hearing. So thank you all. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I have a favor to ask before we start the questions. Um, so because this is taking place within a few blocks of here, most of the book, my hope is that there are still material left to be found. Um, and one of the things, like, for example, I know that there was a correspondence between Henry and Elizabeth while he was in freedom and she was still enslaved. That would be absolutely amazing. Um, also, Mary Mildred Williams worked, she lived on Chestnut Street a few blocks from here, right? She's like uh, over by where the Cheers place is. Um, and uh, 106 Chestnut, if you want to walk by it. We should put a monument up 
like, you know, I don't know who those people are, but they're very fancy. Um, and, uh, so she walked down this way every day to go to her job. Uh, late in life, she worked at the, um, state house as a clerk of court. Um, for most of her adult life, she was um, working in this neighborhood. So maybe, maybe somebody has something somewhere. Um, because she was a woman who was passing as white during a time in which that was criminal, um, she probably did not do a lot of identifying of herself. Plus, she has a name that's difficult to find, um, Mary Williams. Um, so I have put uh, this postcard together. Well, my publicist put this postcard together, let's be honest. Um, and it, it has the cover of the book, but it also has information about me. So I, I invite you, if you think that you have somebody who lives in this neighborhood, who, who's doing research on this stuff, please take a postcard and send it to them and let them know um, to reach out to me if they know of anything or if they find anything. Um, so she lived at 106 Chestnut. She lived at 69 Joy Street. There's a lot of places near here that, you know, might be housing something. Um, thank you all for coming and for your attention. Have a wonderful day.